Welcome and thanks for joining us on the podcast. Now let's join David Keane for his message. There's a celebration of the gospel in Colossians chapter 2 that I think is one of the New Testament's most powerful paragraphs. It's only a couple of short sentences in the English. It's probably just one long sentence in the Greek, knowing the way Paul writes, breaks all the rules of language that your English teacher told you not to do. Don't use lots of words in one sentence and all the big words join together, but punctuate and break up. But Paul just gets thrilled with thinking about the gospel. And so what he does when he's thrilled about thinking of the gospel is he, he develops this thing called... Well, something I've been accused of by all the women in my life called verbal diarrhea, where it just all keeps coming out and keeps coming out and keeps coming out. How many people know you're doing well as a male when the women can tell you you've got verbal diarrhea? But that's happened to me my whole life, and you know that as well. You've said it to someone. And, uh, and, and I'm in good company because I'm in company with Uncle Paul, who just develops an unstoppable stream of verbiage when it comes to the description of what the gospel has done for us and what has been achieved on the cross of Jesus and then in the resurrection of Jesus as well. And it is an interesting process because the world is full of people who experience the fullness of Christ or who believe for the fullness of Christ but are still yet to experience. Now, if you're living and walking in the victory and the overcoming power of the fullness of Christ, it is an amazing place to be at, isn't it, really? And I think a lot of people, if they're followers of Jesus, have had moments where they could say, you know, I really was walking in the fullness of Christ. I was just walking on the waters of all the storms in my life and overcoming the chaos and overcoming the darkness in my past and the sin and death. But then there are also times where we don't feel like we are walking in the fullness of Christ. In fact, we sometimes feel like, is the fullness of Christ a mirage in a desert? And we wouldn't admit it in in company like this because we've put on our Sunday best and we've come to church. And of course we have to be spiritual when we come to church. So people say, how are you? And we say, just getting better all the time. Praise God, brother, walking in victory, how are you? And uh, we speak this language called Christianese, which the rest of the world doesn't speak, uh, and is a terrible language that robs Christianity of its power. And um, we say it to each other all the time. But in reality, there are many of us who do not walk in the fullness of Christ. Now, why I'm saying this is not a rebuke, it's not a slap, but it's actually to help you understand that the book of Colossians is as relevant to us today as it was to the Colossian church when Paul first wrote the letter. Because what he is addressing is the tendency of Christians to have the mountains and the valleys of the walk with Jesus that it is, where our feelings and our own observations and experience of ourselves and this world tend to one moment make us feel like we are sailing on cloud nine and the next minute that we are drowning on a spiritual highway 44 of death getting run over by things and and of course our tendency to experience and feel that way is not always moderated by the sound knowledge that feelings are actually the worst thing to drive your life aren't they and feelings are one of the worst decision making apparatus I that you could I don't know if that's a word but the English teachers can email me and correct me later apparatuses, apparatusimuses and um, feelings are wonderful indicators, right? They, they, they give us um, ability to plumb what might be going on but feelings are also not entirely accurate for the way you live your life remember your first childhood sweetheart? who's having their first childhood sweetheart right now? 
Let's just pray for those poor, misguided, blinded fools. They have no idea about the hijack of their system being flooded with hormones and phenylethylamine, which is like crack, but when it comes to people. And terrible things. But remember when you had your first childhood sweetheart, you thought you were going to be in love with that person for the rest of your days. I can remember mine. Her name was Anne Marie Bolton. She had beautiful red hair, freckles, lovely freckles, not just a few, but lots like an ice cream sprinkled with Milo, she was. And we would sit next to each other because neither of us could do physical education in school. So we would sit next to each other and take our Ventil and asthma puffers together. And then we would gaze into each other's eyes. We would say, hi. But then along came Brendan Wright. And Brendan Wright did not have an asthma puffer. (laughs) Brendan Wright could swing a cricket bat or a tennis racket or a baseball bat. And I wanted to swing one at him many times, don't don't, let me tell you. And of course, Anne-Marie Bolton was lured away by his charms. He he didn't have asthma as an ailment, he had eczema and she was more attracted to that. So she (laughs) went that way. And uh, I remember, by the way, this is like grade two. So I remember going home and explaining to my oldest sister that my heart had been broken and I just didn't think I could go on living. (laughs) Because Anne-Marie Bolton liked Brendan Wright. And if either of you two are listening to this podcast, (laughs) I just want you to know, I hope you're happy together. I forgive you for my heartbreak. I have moved on. See, I I, I literally, in the stupidity of my youthfulness, and and many of us who've had any young people in our lives, we understand, you know, kids get sick and they feel like they're dying. I can't go to school today, I'm dying. You're not just dying, you've got a bit of a sniffle. Yes? And we understand that our feelings are unreliable and they lie to us on a constant basis and they put us in this place where we think something's going to happen that's not going to happen. And so feelings are a reliable indicator of things, but of course they're not the primary basis of any wise person's decision-making structure. Isn't that true? So let me give you an alternative example. Uh, After years and years of counselling, therapy, drugs, alcohol, therapy, counselling, watching Oprah Winfrey on TV, I finally got past my hurt with Anne-Marie Bolton. And then one day, I saw a woman... And I looked at her and I heard a soundtrack playing in the back of my head. Um, the guitarist know what that feeble attempt was. And I looked at her and I said, that woman is a fox. And her name was Danielle Thompson. As everybody else called her, Tomo. She was the most attractive Tomo you've ever seen in your life. I know most of the Tomos that you're familiar with are from the footy team, but she was not from the footy team, Tomo. And she's now surnamed Tifi because stupidly I conned her into marrying me. Um, And it's hard. The world has not been able to work out, did she marry me for my looks, my muscles, or my money? It's just a mystery. It's a deep mystery. And I'm sure you're also weighing up those things, knowing that I'm skinny, weedy, have a big nose, a patchy beard, and no money. So that's good. So there were other things at play. And what happened, of course, is my feelings made me feel attracted to her. My feelings were moved. My feelings were inspired. My, My feelings did indeed play a role in steering the rudder of my life just a little bit closer to her, if you know what I'm saying, in a totally appropriate way. And we left room for the Holy Spirit. And, and um, 
we eventually got to know each other, we dated, we hung out, we talked, we would go on dates and because I only had a skateboard she would pick me up in her orange Datsun 120Y which changed because one day she was driving around thinking about me and she banged into a pole and then it had to get panel beading and a white door put on it and then she had the, a, a racing model. And, and see, what happened, though, is our feelings caused a level of attraction, but, of course, normal processes had to kick in where we had to gauge compatibility. And fortunately for me, I was smart. I said, we're definitely compatible. We should get married. Fortunately for me, she wasn't so smart because she went ahead and married me. And, of course, um, the first couple of years of our marriage was deep pain for her and pure bliss for me. Um, But, see, what happened is our feelings ebbed and flowed because we felt attracted to each other before we got married. And then after we got married, we felt attracted to each other. That's called the honeymoon period. But then a little bit after we got married, we felt like killing each other (laughs) a lot. We didn't do that and there was no violence or aggression in our marriage, but there was the understanding that my feelings are no longer the same now as they were back then. But of course, smart and wise people don't base life decisions on feelings. And what you do is you understand that a human is wired and designed and works a certain way. And here's the way that you work. Focus, thoughts, feelings. Focus, thoughts, feelings. That's the way it works. So what happens is, if you don't uh, pay attention to this process, you just have feelings and feelings drive you. But the process of maturity, the process of growing up, the process of being an adult, is where you realize that whatever I focus on, focus is the magnifying glass of the mind. So whatever I focus on will be the thing that I think about. And then the combination of my focus and my thoughts leads to a posture of activity and mentation, which means thinking, in my life. And the combined process of my focus, my thoughts, my mentation and my actions produces feelings. Now that's science, by the way. All the research says that. In fact, all the research says that your focus is the doorway to the voluntary regulation of your feelings. Did you know that? All the science says humans can voluntarily regulate feeling. And so if you are the victim of terrible feelings right now, then it could be that you haven't understood, been been trained and practiced and exercised the muscle of focus to generate a different set of thoughts, a different set of actions and some mentation and a life posture, which then feelings follow suit. And so, of course, I love my wife more today than I ever have in any other point in history before. I'm not just saying that because I don't have to talk about this. It's just a natural illustration. But why do I love her? Well, because what I've learned to do is not live by the feeling of love and do I feel romantically attached to her and do I feel feeling-based attraction or lust or feeling-based things. But actually, as I focused on her good qualities and as I focused on thinking about how wonderful our life is together and as I take a life posture of service, making the decision to love, which is what the Bible talks of as the highest form of love, then what happens is my feelings seem to follow suit. So what's weird is even though I don't have a love for her based on feelings, I sure feel a lot of love for her. I was recently away away from her for nearly four weeks and um, that was a hard four weeks for me because I kind of like the person I'm married to and it's hard to be away from her. It's annoying actually to wake up and realize no one's there to butter my toes. No, I'm just kidding. She doesn't, she doesn't butter my toes. I mean my toast. My toes or my toast. Um, so see, what happens is sometimes I work with people in, in marriage difficulty and, and there's a couple of, of, of difficulties that present themselves frequently when you're a pastor. One is someone in a relationship no longer feels love for the person and they want out of the relationship. Another one is that someone in the relationship not only doesn't feel love, but they feel other types of very, very negative emotions when it comes to that person. 
And in our relationship series, you could get the download of the podcast if you wanted to or talk to me and I could give you the notes or the tools. But one of the things we talked about in our relationship series was the way that Romans chapter 12 says, attune your focus not by focusing on the negative, but by focusing on the positive, focusing on things that are noble, focusing on the good. And then when you focus on the good in someone, you can separate the good from the bad. You can have a very productive, loving relationship with them. So it's all about your focus. Now, that has not much to do with Colossians, but it just has everything to do with Colossians. Because in the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul is noting that the Colossian church are very, very flighty. They are blown by various influences and winds of doctrine. And some of those winds of doctrine are just human ideas that seem tantalizing. And others actually have behind them dark and shadowy power, evil spirits, evil powers, which Paul calls the elementary spirits of this world that animate those ideas. So on the one hand, there's just human traditions. On the other hand, there is influence from dark, sinister, evil spirits that they don't identify are behind those thinking patterns. And whether these are human traditions or whether these are dark patterns inspired or inserted by evil powers which do exist in the world, the Colossian church are in danger of having their emotions hijacked by either these human traditions or these spiritual powers and then being driven by their emotions and their feelings of emptiness and their feelings that there might be something more and then being led down the garden path and so Paul describes for them the process of ensuring that that's not going to be their life and it has application in so many areas it has application for your career path it has application for your married life it has application for your home life it has application for your life of faith and Paul explains it from pretty much like let's say chapter 3 of Colossians onwards after he's taught them the theory then he teaches them the praxis the practices of the Christian life what do you actually do how do you actually live what about when you close your Bible or you get up off your knees then what do you do with your life and Paul articulates and expounds on a life that could be lived differently because they learn to attune their focus, attune their thoughts and then not have to be driven by their feelings but see their feelings change and follow suit. And so this is the process of transformation that Paul sets up, that the gospel has done something amazing because in the cross of Jesus amazing freedom and transformation and victory is possible. I'm going to say that bit again. Because I think Christians should give a hearty amen to the idea that in the cross, amazing transformation, amazing victory and amazing change is possible. Something powerful has happened in the fabric of the universe when Jesus breathed his laughter and said, it is finished. Indeed, things came to an end for humans, for any human that would say yes to the gospel and walk in the power of the cross. There is amazing possibility, there is amazing healing, and there is amazing change. And then, of course, because Jesus took our sin and death to the tomb with him, but when he rose up, he left it there, so he walked in newly glorified, resurrected life. Then Paul says to the Colossians, but you and I, we can also join Jesus in resurrection life. So it's not just about dying to something, but it's now about living for something. And that's an incredibly powerful truth. If you don't see the Christian life as living for something and it's only dying to something, then your whole life is always what you're against instead of what you're for. And sadly, the Christian religion has had centuries of telling the world what it stands against because it only focuses on the cross. But we also need to get Jesus off the cross. That's why we wear empty crosses around our necks, not crosses with the body of Jesus still on them. It's this minor theological idea that in the evangelical world, we don't keep Jesus on the cross as a focus of our worship because he is indeed alive. Who can say amen? And so we are invited into his newness of life, invited into his resurrection power 
and we're invited into his resurrection power so that our lives can be transformed and then our transformed lives gather together which is why all the you statements in the book of Colossians are plural not singular I come from Queensland originally so when Queenslanders say you in the plural butchering the Queen's English they say yous what are yous doing what are yous up to this Christmas who loves a good turn of Queensland phrase it's better than South Australian phrase where they cut the g off every word that ends in ing but anyway we won't have a battle of the states here because Paul Stansel's not here to hear us tease Tasmania Use is such a great theological term. Whenever you read the word you in Colossians, you should actually think you all. The Texans have it when they say y'all. Yes? The rap stars. just making sure it's all out of your system and off your chest it's okay i want you to be free y'all y'all how does it go jamie you don't know and you're telling all of us listen that makes you a visiting evangelist sister if you get up and say something you know nothing about that has no content and no data to it to the whole church <laughs> it's a joke it's a joke not really yeah it is a joke it is. y'all you all it's a collective plural so what happens in the christian life is we embrace something different to focus on called the cross of jesus and then what we do is we allow our focus and our thoughts to become attuned to the cross and then the resurrection of jesus and the fact that we are gifted newness of life and we are supplied with some amazing wonderful and powerful imagery that conditions our focus and conditions our thoughts and if we use that imagery as a script by which to live by to condition our focus and to condition our thoughts then what we do is we live a different way and as we live a different way we experience this thing called transformation it starts with change but it leads to transformation change and transformation aren't the same thing by the way change is just something's different about you now transformation is you're a completely different being now and that's where the road to freedom is is not just in trying to change but actually in being transformed that's what the christian gospel offers us so i'm going to read to you from a passage in colossians and then i'm going to talk to you about the process of change with specific focus on but what happens if i don't experience this change I've had people sit in my office who've been Christians for 30 years, 50 years, complaining that they haven't experienced the transformation that is apparently promised in the gospel. What's the problem? There's a way to address that. I've had people who've been Christians three months complain about the same thing. Then I've had people who've been Christians one day experience the complete dramatic transformation. And there is a process. And so why I'm saying this is never to slap you, but to actually help you get hope and trust and faith and understand that true transformation is possible for all of us because it's not about what you do, it's about what Jesus has done. And then what you have to begin to do is walk in the newness of what Jesus has done. Let's turn in our Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. And we're going to have a look from, let's see, Colossians from verse 9. So Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. I'm going to read through right to the end of verse 15. I think this is one of Paul's most magnificent descriptions and explanations of what the gospel is. It's incredibly loaded. I could have done a whole 20-week series just on this paragraph. I'm not going to, but it is possible for one to do that because there's so much information in here. Listen to what he says. For in Christ, 
the fullness of God, the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. Just think about that. First of all, the fullness of God is in Christ. And if you're in Christ, you too have been brought to fullness. Isn't that a powerful thought? He is the head over every power and every authority. In him, you were also circumcised. How many people just joy about that? In him, you were circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. That's all the men just say, phew. The women don't laugh because they don't know what it's about, fellas. But trust me, you don't want it. Circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Now think about this because Paul is saying Christ is the fullness of God and fullness is in him. And you in Christ have been brought to fullness. Well, how did that happen? Well, first of all, when you become a Christian, when you say yes to the gospel, when you become a follower of Jesus, then Jesus himself performs a dramatic act. And Paul metaphorically here talks about it as though Christ is circumcising you. Now, we know the Colossians are under pressure from the Jewish people to get actually circumcised. So Paul is playing on the idea that is warring against them, the religious idea that they can't have the fullness of God unless they were physically circumcised. And Paul says, you don't need it because when you became a Christian, you got a much better version of circumcision than just something physically being cut off somewhere. Don't think about it much in church. Your whole self used to be ruled by the flesh. It was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. How? Well, here's what happened. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. See what baptism is as a Christian. This is why we baptize adults and not infants in our church. It's not that we're super critical of those who practice the alternative, but it's just that we want you to be baptized so that you can understand that when we push you under that water, we don't just sprinkle, we do full immersion baptism like the early church did. Why? Because for Paul... That this is the picture of what the Christian life actually is. When you are plunged under the water, you are resonating with an ancient tradition. The world in Genesis 1 being brought up from the watery murky depths. A brand new creation world coming up in response to God's word. Where now light shines and now life can flourish. Number two, the people of Israel walking through the Red Sea where they went down into the banks of the river and came up on the other side and they turned around and the Egyptians were drowning in that water. They went down and they came back up again to live a new life in a new land. That's what baptism meant to Jewish people. And Jewish people in the ancient times only ever baptized Gentile converts. They didn't baptize each other. Jewish people didn't baptize Jewish people. They baptized non-Jewish people. Why? Because they had their experience of being baptized when Moses or Joshua and the Israelites went through the water. And then every Gentile that converted to the faith under the Gentile times, they baptized them in water as a symbolic part of them saying, that was me going through the Red Sea. That was me going through the Jordan River following Joshua. I'm having my own entry time into the promised land. And then in the Gospels, Jesus, or preceded by his cousin, John the Baptist, comes and said to all the Jewish people, you're not even followers of God. You're not even the people of God. That's why John told all of the Jews to get baptized. It was unheard of. Jewish people didn't practice baptisms for Jewish people. And John the Baptist came and said, you should repent, you brood of vipers, meaning you're just full of poison, and this religion is only religion, and it is not inspired by God, and you're not God's people, and you're not following God, so you all need to get baptized. And then, of course, you'd think, well, that message is going to get you killed. It did. But before it got him killed, thousands of people followed John the Baptist out into the wilderness and got baptized. 
And then Jesus himself went and got baptised as a form of obedience, as a form of resonance, as a, as a way of resonating with the story of the ancient people of God. And then Jesus and his, his disciples, they went around and they baptised people as well. And Jesus had his people, his disciples, baptising so many people that when the Pharisees and the, and, and the Herodians heard about it, they started plotting his death because they said, this guy's baptising even more people than John the Baptist. Well, what's so offensive about dunking people under the water? Because it's a way of saying that there is a brand new life for you and you absolutely must have it. And to the Jewish people, Jesus was saying, doesn't matter if you go to the temple, doesn't matter what you sacrifice, doesn't matter what law you follow, doesn't matter if you have the collection of the stone tablets in your own lounge room. You have to be plunged under those waters and raised up into newness of life. Because you must die to the old self. And you must experience being buried like Jesus was in the tomb. And you must experience being resurrected when you come up out of that water. It's not the same you coming up out of that water. If you have been baptised, a different you came up out of that water. You don't necessarily look like a different you. Sometimes you don't even feel like a different you. But of course your feelings are the least important part of this process. And the action of God is the most important part of this process. So you've been plunged under the waters and you've been brought up in resurrection life. Going into the water is like Jesus going into the tomb. Coming out of the water is like Jesus coming out of the tomb. Resurrection life. And now you walk like an Israelite into inheriting the promised land. Only it's not geographical space, it's now heavenly space. Invading earthly space. So every step you and I take in this resurrection life is a step in promised land. You know, when you go to your workplace on Monday, you can go to your workplace with the drudgery of a horrible place or you can walk into it like it's part of the promised land. And everywhere your foot sets steps, it can become your your holy ground. Isn't that an amazing thing? There are no more holy places in planet Earth. Holy places are where you walk because where you walk, Jesus goes with you and wherever Jesus is, that becomes a holy place. So we worship in a building, but we don't think this place is a temple. We think these are the, this is the temple. New Testament says it's not the building, it's the people. The people are the living stones. The people are the bricks and they are being built together to form a spiritual house, to form a temple. So the people of the temple, we don't meet in the house of God on Sundays. We meet as the house of God on Sundays. And so just like you would hate to bash a hole in your lounge room wall at home, that's what happens when you're not worshipping with God's people. A hole's been bashed in the temple because you're a brick and you should be in place. And so should I. So should others. And we're undergoing constant renovation, so we're adding rooms and buildings and hallways and all sorts of stuff all the time. Isn't that true? And so Paul says, Jesus, when you got baptised, it's a mixture of metaphors. On the one hand, it's a metaphor of baptism. On the other hand, it's the metaphor of circumcision. When you got baptised, that was you being circumcised. Your old life ruled by the flesh was being cut away by Jesus. It's pretty powerful if you think about that. And why does Paul tell them? Because they've forgotten about it. It's true of them, you see. It's true of them. It's just that they've forgotten what's true of them. And because they've forgotten what's true of them, they're now longer, no longer now able to live out of that truth. And that's the same thing for you and I. You get in life mostly what you focus on. You have a part of your brain called your reticular activating system, the RAS. And its sole job is to give you what you focus on in life. You know this because if you're snow skiing and there's one solitary pine tree out in the middle of a field and you just stare at that pine tree saying, don't bang into the pine tree, don't bang into the pine tree. Do you know what you're going to do? You're going to bang into the pine tree. Because your reticular activating system steers you towards what you focus on. 
And not only is that true physically, like when you're skiing or they teach you this when you ride a motorbike or a cycle of some description as well, you get where you go where your focus is attuned. It's true. And that's why the Bible says you become like the character that you keep because you hang around people and you start focusing on them and who they are and what they have and what they're like and then your focus is attuned and then your thoughts follow your focus so you start thinking the way they think. And so that's why the Bible teaches us it's not people that we focus on, we focus on Jesus and then I can hang out with anyone who's ungodly but they're not my focus because I am shaped into what I focus on. So what I focus on has power over my life. Isn't that true? So instead of trying to stop your pornography addiction, if you're out there with one, then what you need to do is stop focusing on the human body and start focusing on the spirit of God. Reattune what you're hijacked by. If you're struggling with a drinking problem, if you're struggling with a drug problem, if you're struggling with a shame problem, if you're struggling with some type of cycle, don't focus on the cycle. There's a different way for you to attune your mind. And Paul offers the Colossians the most powerful way, the gospel message, the cross of Christ, the resurrection life. And if you focus on it, your thoughts will be shaped by it. And when your thoughts are shaped by it, so are your actions and so is your mentation. And that means you change. And as you change enough over time, God's spirit makes you into a transformed person. It's a process, not an event. You also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. That's called position. Everybody say position. According to the cross of Christ, if you've been baptized as a person, as a believer, if you're a believer in Jesus, then when you plunged into the waters, you identified with the death of Jesus on the cross. All my stuff is now dead with him. When you're brought up out of the water, it's like Jesus coming out of the tomb. Now my stuff is dead, but I am alive to live a brand new free life. That's called position. That's a position you're granted by a gift of grace when you say yes to the gospel message and then you live out in obedience to that. Your life is supposed to be shaped by that message. It's not a thing you hear one time. It's something you should daily focus and reflect on. That's what Christian devotion is. It's taking a big, deep breath of that message and exhaling it like you're smoking something, but you're not really smoking something. But you're inhaling the cross. You're inhaling the word. You're inhaling and focusing on and being marinated by the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And then you're exhaling all your pollution, all of your sin, all of your death, all of your old ways. Well, Paul doesn't say you're exhaling. He says you're putting it off. You're expelling. You're ridding yourself of the old carbon dioxide of your life and you're being oxygenated by the gospel message. That's why we do Christian devotions. Not because you're following rules, because you actually need to breathe, don't you? This is what he says. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. God made... This is, listen to how Paul describes what a Christian is. Not, you were pretty smart, you were pretty wise, so you made a good choice by coming to Jesus. Because you're brilliant. And other people out there, they're evil and they're stupid and they're not brilliant, so they haven't made the same good choice that you made. See, Paul doesn't expose the gospel that way or expound the gospel that way. He also doesn't celebrate at all, well, you were going to hell, but now you're going to heaven, which has no value to transform your earthly current existence. We're glad we're going to heaven, but that's not what Paul says when he preaches the gospel in Colossians. Do a word search. You don't see hell in there because Paul does not primarily preach about hell. If you're offended, you should be. Paul preaches about life and he preaches about transformation and he preaches about God's activity in saving you. The Christian life is not about what you did. I was smart enough, I came to Jesus. Pat me on the back. I'm a spiritual black belt. He says, when you were dead, 
You were lifeless, you were immobile, you were unmoving. That's how you are if you don't know Jesus. You are spiritually dead, your soul is not breathing, and you are in a state of morbidity. But God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive. God, Jesus said, oh, he's the great physician, and it's such a wonderful picture because... What God does, this is what happens. God doesn't take bad people and make them good according to C.S. Lewis. He takes dead people and he makes them live. That's what Christianity is all about. Not bad people trying to become good, trying to fix their lives. Dead people being given a breath of fresh air and boom, they're alive again. Resuscitated. Heart used to be not going, now heart is going. It's an amazing process. God, when you were dead, God made you alive with Christ. God did something in your life. God performed an action. And the action is he joined you to Christ. And if he joined you to Christ, that means that what Christ died to, you died to. And what Christ lives out of, you can also live out of. You've got to stop sometimes and just say to yourself, you know, that's who I am. That's called accepting our position in Christ. That's our position. Well, I don't feel like that. No, don't. Let's, we'll talk about experience in a minute. But Paul's not talking necessarily just about experience here. He's talking about your position. And your experience follows suit when you focus and think about the position that you've been given. So Paul spends Colossians chapter 1 and 2 mainly dealing with the ideas of their position in Christ. Because he just wants to infect them with it so the software of their whole life is changed and therefore the way they live and operate also is transformed. You were were brought alive together with Christ. And listen to what he says. He forgave us all of our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. See, interesting, it doesn't say that God condemned us in this bit. And I I find this is a very interesting way that Paul says where condemnation comes from. In this paragraph, he doesn't say, God, who condemned you? He says the legal charge of indebtedness against us. It's like every person has a cosmic certificate against their name that articulates all of their sin, all of their failings and all of their shortcomings. Wouldn't it be horrible if we walked around with that pinned to our chest? Well, I'd need a, Sherpa, a team of Sherpas to carry my list, actually. It'd be a long roll. Um, and yours might not be that long, but it, it would still be horrible for people to see it, wouldn't it? And Jesus says, but, but, and Paul says, but what happens on the cross is Jesus takes that certificate, that invoice, that debt you owe, that chronicle of your indebtedness which is legal and justifiable, the thing that condemns you, the thing that stands against you and that you could could in life struggle to actually believe anything wonderful about yourself if you only focused on all of the wrong things that you've ever done and what was wrong with you, your shortcomings, your shame, your pain. And, And Paul says, what happened on the cross is Jesus took that and it's nailed to the cross with him. And in the action of being nailed to the cross, it has been now cancelled out. Why? Because in the Old Testament world, the way that you cancelled a debt between you and God was you offered a sacrifice and you shed its blood. And the shedding of the blood of that sacrifice cancels out the debt of sin that you owe. That was done once a year on the Day of Atonement. And the shedding of the blood of the sacrifice cancels out the record of your sin and it makes atonement for it. It removes from you the pollution of wrongdoing, the penalty of wrongdoing and the power of the wrongdoing. And Paul says we never need to offer one more sacrifice of an animal or grain or wine ever again. Because Jesus took that cosmic certificate that each one of us had against our name, nailed it to the cross and when he died, it died. It is now cancelled 
out. Isn't that amazing? So why do you let your past tell you what to do? Because you realise it's been cancelled out. So it's no longer that your past has power, but if in your focus and your thinking you give it power, then it does have power because what you give power has power over you. It's not that it objectively is powerful. It's that you give it power. Understand? This is like fear, right? I, I, I for 18 years, did not go in the ocean because I had sharkophobia. Stupidly, because I'd never seen a shark other than SeaWorld or the movie Jaws, which doesn't help with your sharkophobia. And when I was younger, I was a surfer, and I'd be swimming in the ocean with my legs dangling over my surfboard, and I'd just picture a shark looking up there going, mm-mm, And I just thought I was going to get my face bitten off in the water, so I never went in there again. And so on the one hand, you could say, well, sharks stop me from swimming in the ocean, but no shark ever stopped me from swimming in the ocean. Oh, your experience stopped you from swimming in the ocean, but I never actually got my face bitten off by a shark. It wasn't like Mick Fanning, who nearly got his face bitten off by the shark and punched the shark in the face in South Africa. You remember the story? I was watching that surfing competition live at the time. It happened an amazing experience. And, and, and see, what happened is that our whole lives are populated by fears and phantom things from our past. Even your biggest temptations, you know what they really are according to Paul? They're a phantom from your past which has actually been cancelled out and it has no actual power over you, but whenever you perceive power, that power therefore becomes real. Understand? That's why I, can, I could take you to my office and sit you down in a chair and I could give you an anxiety attack if you wanted me to. And I'll tell you how we could do it, because we can do it the reverse way too. If you're experiencing anxiety attacks, we can teach you how to not have anxiety attacks that hijack you and rule your life. And it's exactly the same process. It's called attunement of focus and saturation of thoughts. And attunement of focus and saturation of thoughts leads to a posture and mentation, and that posture and mentation with the thoughts and the focus becomes feelings. So an anxiety attack is when your feelings just hijack your system, but usually it's because you're not in control of the focus, the thoughts, and then the posture and the mentation. So you're being ruled by your feelings. It's not just, and you shouldn't feel bad if you're having those anxiety attacks. Actually, you should feel hopeful because we know how to help you with those things. But the same is true of drug addiction. The same is true of uh, your victimhood mentality. The same is true if you've been a victim of abuse and violence and you have the uh, traumatic fractures in your personality that go along with that. See, all of those things are from your past. And and Paul says that on the cross, Jesus has cancelled everything out from your past. He's cancelled it all out. And then he says something very interesting, that, that human traditions and the powers and principalities of this world, those two things, they are actually so powerful that they continually try to bring you back to them. They continually try to rule over you and they continually try to rule and reign over you. And so it's important that this part that Paul says, not only were they cancelled out over you, listen to what he says, that this indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away nailing it to the cross, listen to this, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What happened on the cross? Well, you see a tragic martyrdom. You see a sacrifice. You see a death. You see terrible injustice. But that's not what Isaiah saw. Isaiah saw surely he has carried our infirmities. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, it was upon him. And, and, and Isaiah saw a sacrifice. Isaiah saw a substitute. Isaiah saw a miraculous shredding in the fabric of the universe of all of our sin and our death and our shame and our pain. And Paul says, but there's also something else at play here. When you look at the cross, you're not seeing something tragic. You're seeing something beautiful. In the mystery of Christianity is all wrapped up in this one idea. That the cross was not the defeat of Jesus. The cross was the victory of Jesus. The cross was not the defeat of Jesus. The cross was the defeat of sin and death and every power and every principality. The cross was the defeat and death of every human tradition on the one hand and every spiritual force of darkness on the other. And in fact, Paul says, well, Paul says, let me unpack this for you. And he says, on the cross, Jesus disarmed them. That means he took away their weapons and they are now harmless to you. So if I come into the bank this week and and you're in there performing a transaction and I am holding a firearm, I promise I won't do this. I won't even hold a firearm whether I come into your bank or not. And I say, stick them up, then you're going to stick them up. And the reason you're going to stick them up is not because there's any great quality in me, but because I have a powerful weapon that could do you damage. But so what happens if somebody comes in and they take that weapon away from me? Are you then going to do what I say? Are you going to stick them up now? Are you going to hand over your money now? Are you going to allow me to pillage you? Is the bank going to say, oh, well, look, he doesn't have the weapon, but he still has evil intentions. And we all know how bad evil intentions are. So we better give him our money anyway to assuage his evil intentions. That's not what they do. Probably 10 of you would pounce on me and restrain me and I'd end up in jail. And Paul says that on the cross, this is what happened. Although there are dark spiritual forces out there that have evil intentions, and there really are. I was telling you last week and in our second service, I was telling them as well about just how many times in India we would be preaching the gospel and declaring the wonders of God and people whose lives were literally full of and inhabited by dark evil forces were overcome and they would fall on the ground shrieking. There were people slithering up and down like snakes and all sorts of stuff. One young man, his parents brought him and he said, he has a problem with evil spirits. And I've got to tell you, when I looked at the kid, I didn't even believe what they were saying. I thought, oh, he's probably got a bit of mental illness or something like that. And they said, he, he, he cannot abide the person of Jesus. And I said, really? And I looked at the kid and the kid just innocently looked at me. He would have been seven years old. I said, I sat down on the edge of the platform where we were praying for people. And I said to the kid, sit down beside me, buddy. And he sat down beside me. Do you speak English? He speaks English. I said, can you feel something? He said, no. I said, okay, I'm just going to pray for you for the peace of God to come upon your life. I put a hand on his back very gently and I said, King Jesus, I declare your lordship and your authority over this boy's life. And I thank you that you are the sovereign lord of the universe and more powerful than any tradition of men, any force of darkness, anything from the power of sin and death. That kid immediately had a violent manifestation of demons. He immediately began to thrash around on the ground. He immediately began convulsing and choking. And you know what's funny is because I'm, I, I believe in that stuff, but I'm not like super extreme in my beliefs about that stuff, which means in my head I'm always allowing, it might not be demons, it might just be that the guy's got schizophrenia, or it might be just like that he's so traumatized or something like this. So I always perform the acid test, and the acid test is um, you use your authority of, in Christ, who is over every power and principality. And if it stops, it was a demon. And if it doesn't stop, he might just need a psychiatrist and some medication, really. Um, You might have different opinions about that, and that's fine too. And so I say to this thing to test, is this really a demon or not, or is this just like a crazy kid, you know? 
But bearing in mind that he comes from a culture where for thousands of years they have offered their lives in worship to evil spirits and very evil and dark things. And whatever you worship gets inside you and it overtakes your life. And that's what's happened to this boy as as a seven-year-old. I'd like to talk to the parents as well. And so I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with this kid and by this stage he's thrashing around and he's being very violent so I just put my hand underneath his head and I'm sort of trying to hold him still not in a violent way but just to stop him from injuring himself. And of course it's becoming a spectacle so other people are beginning to watch and stare and they're amazed and he's starting to make terrible sounds in a voice that wasn't his deep, manly, disgusting, grotesque noises. And I got down close to his ear and I said, you evil spirit, in the name of Jesus I command you to stop tormenting him right now and cease all activities in this boy's life. Well, the boy swiveled around and he vomited into my hand, a truly disgusting experience. And then he sat up in his right mind. And he looked and he blinked around and he said, what's going on? So why am I telling you this? And then you need to know, I quickly handed him over to the local pastor and I went and dead-old my arms all the way everywhere. It was a horrible thing to happen, uh, but more horrible for him. But see, what happens is, so you, you, you've all seen the Exorcist movie. You've all seen horrible, hopefully, you know, don't, don't abuse yourself by sitting through it. But you've all seen and heard horrible things about these things. But, you know, we don't need to rant and rave and, and, and we don't need to put on a show and we don't need to put on a spectacle because it's not about us, it's not about our sweat and the veins popping out of our foreheads. This is why I'm telling, why am I telling you this? Because I don't want you to have nightmares, but I want you to understand. For Paul, this is what he wants the Colossians to get. Christ has so powerfully disarmed powers and principalities that on the cross, it was on the cross he took away their weapons. It was on the cross he defeated them. And so now as a believer with the authority of Jesus in me, and you can have it in you too. In fact, we had people with us on that trip that had never experienced that before. And the best thing that could happen to them is we made them cast out some demons too and shut up some terrible evil things because they would have thought maybe someone special could do it, but me, are you a Christian? Yes, then you've got your badge. That Jesus on the cross has so disarmed powers and principalities. Powers and principalities radical enough to appear like they have completely taken over and overcome a human life. And that person is performing actions beyond their control, choking, vomiting, writhing around on the floor, saying terrible profanity in a deep manly voice. Had one Tibetan guy that didn't speak English cursing me in the English language. And we had to shut that evil spirit up. And why am I telling you this? Not to scare you, not to impress you. To, to, to show you, see... In the name of Jesus, those things bow. And they seem powerful, but they don't have any weapons except for intimidation and fear. And so what happens is we should not fall for the intimidation. We should apply the cross. And some people would see that little boy thinking, well, I'm not going to pray for him if that's what's going to happen. And others would say, well, I'm definitely going to pray for him because that evil has to leave his life. And it leaves lives when confronted with the power of the cross of Calvary. And all the way through Jesus' ministry in the Gospels, Jesus casts out evil spirits. Actually, it's funny because I don't know what you believe about evil spirits. On, on, on the sort of, you know, really literal reading of the Bible, they are actual demons that are evil, fallen minions of Satan. But of course, the New Testament allows some other ambiguities of what they are. They, are, they can be that, but they can also be collective powerful manifestations just of an evil idea which is not a personal spirit but just deep evil that can take root in the human soul and that's why the new testament calls them evil spirits but what it really calls them is evil winds evil winds not talking about the evil wind that you had when you were camping but evil winds that 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 sometimes a breath of something gets in you and animates you and is evil and that's what happens and 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 
what we saw in India, and I've seen it here in Australia, I've seen it in every country I've ever visited, is that the name of Jesus is so much more powerful than any evil that can be inside a human being. Whether it's an actual personal spirit taking them over or just an idea that's resident in their head. And so Paul groups these two things together. I'm going to show you how he does it before I shush up and stop preaching. Um, Paul groups together that there could be evil spirits, but there could just be bad ideas. And watch what he says in verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your life in him. So, So keep doing it with Jesus. Why? Rooted and built up in him strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. So that's what he's saying you should do. Be planted in Jesus. Let your roots be deep in him. Let the nourishment and the growth and everything come out of who he is. But what's the alternative? Look at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. And see what Paul does is he groups a collection of things together. Hollow and deceptive philosophy, that means evil ideas. Human traditions, that means there's plenty of bad human, plenty of good ones, but there's plenty of bad ones. And then there are elemental spiritual forces. Again, why doesn't Paul just say demons? Because he's not only talking about demons. The forces of darkness could just plant an idea in your head. That doesn't mean you've got a demon. It means you've been given some bait that comes from one. So we can't cast that out of you, you understand. Can't cast a thought out of your head. Can't cast a habit out of your life. We'll pray for you. But what you have to do is you have to be rooted and grounded in Christ, strengthened in him, being built up in your faith. And we can drive out evil spirits and we can drive out powers and principalities, but you have to attune your focus and you have to attune your thoughts and you have to attune your actions and your mentation and that will bring change, which will become transformation. See how it works? So let me summarise for you what the Christian life is. The Christian life is a new position. That's a gift. The Christian life is a new focus. That is growth. The Christian life is new habits. That is change. And when you add those things up, the Christian life is a new identity. And that is transformation. New position, growth, is gift. You, You get it as a gift. New focus is growth. New habits is change. And a new identity is transformation. I'm going to read you one last verse. And Paul keeps talking about this and then he says this. Listen to what he says. Verse 1 of chapter 3 in Colossians. We're skipping ahead. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Everybody say, set your hearts. Your heart, when the Bible says it, is your mind, your will, and your emotions. And your mind is the focus you give and the thoughts you think. Your will is the choices you make, and your emotions are the feelings that you feel. Take your mind, your will, and your emotions and set them on Jesus. Okay? Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And then listen listen to what he says. In case you missed the point, verse 2, set your minds on things above. Set your hearts on things above. Set your minds on things above. A parallelism. He's saying almost the same thing twice. Set your focus and your thoughts on things above, not on earthly things. In other words, attune your focus to this status and position you've been given. Verse 3, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Hidden with Christ in God. Want to find life? Find Christ. Life is hidden in Christ. Want to find your life? Want to get a life? Get Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ 
in God. Your new identity is hidden in God. Your new habits are hidden in God. So, so you plant yourself in Christ and you let everything of him become nourishment to you. That's why Paul says, rooted in him, built up, strengthened. You're like a plant now. And the root system of your life will become the fruit system of your life. So what are your roots entangled in? Well, how do you change? Well, your roots really are your focus and your thoughts. So your focus and your thoughts are where your life's going to be planted. We hope you have been encouraged by this message. For more information, check out our website at desertlifechurch.org.